0: Okay, uh, I. Okay, we're gonna go ahead and get started, uh, guys. It makes me so happy to hear this room filled with you guys talking. Uh, I know I've said this before, but it's hard to imagine that two two years ago uh, we weren't able to do this anymore, and we started doing church. We were doing a podcast, then we were doing it on a screen, and uh, man, that is just not the way that God made us to do church, that what we just got to do together is so important, uh, that being gathered together as we sing and hear each other sing, as we get to greet each other, welcome each other, as we get to hear the word preached and interact together, uh, this is what God created us to be a part of together, so uh, I'm just very thankful for that this morning. Uh, As we get started, I'm going to ask John to go ahead and come up. John is going to read our passage for us this morning. So if you have uh, your Bible with you, you can go ahead and open up to John 3. We're going to be in verses 1, uh, John 3, 1 through 21. And I asked John if he would stand in this thing this morning. Uh, Just a fun fact. Okay, we don't usually use this, but this is called a pulpit. Uh, And uh, there's a reason that churches have these things. So, yes, do you see? Uh, there's a practical purpose. So these were, these were a part of churches going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And part of it is that it helps the speaker project out over the congregation. So if imagine we were doing church before there was any kind of amplification, right? Uh, and I had to do this all with just my voice. Being up would help you hear me. There are some churches where you would go up like three stories into one of these things to like shout down over the people. But there's also a theological reason that churches uh, use these. And what it shows visually is what we believe is true spiritually or theologically, which is that God's word is above us, that it sits in authority over us. So when we read scripture, that what we're reading is God's word to us. And because it's God's word, we are under its authority. Uh, So I'm not telling you we're going to start doing this every Sunday, but I just thought this was kind of a a fun fact and is connected kind of to where we're going with the sermon this morning because we're talking about uh, throughout this. John, I called you up way too early, but (laughs) classic pastor problem. Uh, We're in this sermon series where we're encouraging uh, curiosity about Jesus. And there's a way that we can approach curiosity that that makes, uh, we'll call it, that makes Jesus a curiosity instead of a person to be curious about. As if we could ask questions about Jesus and then walk out of the room and think, "Hmm, that is a really interesting fact I learned about him today. That's not the kind of curiosity we're encouraging. That what we're encouraging in the sermon series is that we would lean in and that we would want to know Jesus more so that we can be changed by Jesus more. So being reminded that God's word sits above us even as we come curious matters. Okay, so now you can read the passage for us, okay? So this is John 3, 1 through 21.
1: Now there was a man of the Pharisees named named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thanks, John. Let's pray.
0: (coughs) Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we believe that uh, through your Holy Spirit, you delight to meet with us and to change us uh, through through your word. And so pray that you would do that this morning, that you would illuminate uh, our hearts, that you'd show us who you are, and that you'd be drawing us to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start this morning like we've been starting for the last few weeks in this series. What in this passage are you curious about? What questions do you have after hearing this passage read? And remember, we're focusing the questions specifically on this passage, right? So what from this passage do you have questions about? Why, did Jesus Why does Jesus call himself son of man? Yeah, why is Jesus a teacher? Why does Nicodemus come at night? night? Yeah, what's the ascended-descended thing all about? Guys, you all have so few questions. Maybe you guys should be up here instead of me. (laughs) What's the deal with light and dark? Yeah, in this passage. What is with the truly, truly thing? Yeah, water and the spirit. Okay, one more. Yes. (laughs) Yes, right? It's a great question this guy's like he's a teacher like hey man this is called a metaphor okay (laughs) we'll talk about that we're not going to answer all those questions this morning but again right what we're trying to stir up is this curiosity about the scriptures that we would come to it not with all the things that we've ever heard not as people who have mastered the word but as people who desired to be mastered uh, by the God who's given us his word and us coming curious is a part of that And there's a lot that we could talk about in this passage. My wife tells me I say that all the time, but it's true. There's so much we could talk about, but we're going to focus on three things, okay? We're going to talk about the self-sufficiency of Nicodemus, so self-sufficiency. We're going to talk about surrender, the surrender that Jesus calls him to, and then the surprise of surrender. So three S things, right? Uh, Self-sufficiency, surrender, and surprise is where we're going this morning. So we're going to start by talking about this guy, uh, Nicodemus. And what the text tells us is that he, he was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. And when it says he's a ruler of the Jews, what that likely means is he was part of this group called the Sanhedrin. So there are these 70 men kind of drawn from Israel who were the rulers kind of under, under Rome, but the rulers really of this nation. So Nicodemus was a man with a lot of authority, with political authority in the nation. But because the, the nation of Israel has always, or w- was always kind of a, a, a theocracy, even if it's kind of removed from those ancient roots at this point, uh, this, this group of rulers also has spiritual authority. So Nicodemus is this man of political and spiritual authority. And then later on, kind of in the discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus, Jesus says to him, he identifies him as the teacher of Israel, the teacher of Israel. It was a really interesting comment. And we don't know exactly what, what Jesus is talking about here, but it could be that this man has kind of uh, taken the position as as the, the teacher of the nation. Like if you think about how we sometimes have a, not sometimes, I guess every year, we have a, a poet laureate in the United States. We gotta say this person is the poet of the United States, right? Uh, that's kind of what Jesus is, is saying about Nicodemus. He's the teacher of Israel. He's recognized across the nation as the preeminent expert on spirituality, on matters of religion uh, for these people. One commentator says it's, it's like his title is uh, Professor, Reverend, Doctor. He's got all the titles, all the accolades. People buy this guy's books, right? Not really, but, but theoretically speaking. They t- when he speaks on any topic, people lean in to hear what he has to say. He's the trusted authority in Israel. He's a man who sees himself as self-sufficient. Because of his authority, because of his knowledge, because of his great understanding, he is a man who really has a lot of control over the way the world plays out around him. He's a man who has a lot of independence, who's got things figured out. And he comes to Jesus, and he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And, and you kind of have to lean in a little bit on this, but, but what Nicodemus is communicating, it's, it's almost a kind of um, smugness. Right? If you think about that, for Nicodemus to come to Jesus, right, the Son of God, the revelation of God's truth in the world. And he says, hey, some of us have been talking and we think that you're from God. Okay, but we still have some questions for you. That's kind of his attitude, you know? But there's some things we gotta know. So we're willing to grant that like, you know a lot of stuff. But there's some things we kinda gotta get ironed out here. It makes me think of uh, the masterpiece of film uh, Mean Girls. Are any of you familiar with that movie? No? There's a group of popular girls at the school, and they say to a transfer student, uh, you're in luck. We're going to invite you to have lunch with us every day this week. And the girl's like, I don't, uh, I don't really, I have other friends. She's like, no, 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 no. Like, this, this is what you're going to do. You're going to come and sit with us. It's a sense of like, well, I, didn't, I wasn't asking you to invite me anyway, right? You can imagine Jesus kind of having that same kind of reaction to Nicodemus. Um, I wasn't asking for you to acknowledge my authority or to grant me any of your authority anyway. But as a man with this kind of self-sufficiency, that's the only way he knows how to approach Jesus. He is, he's there to, to essentially judge Jesus' authority, to kind of figure out with Jesus, Jesus, how do you fit into my already existing boxes? How do you fit into my system of control? How do you fit into my system, my religious system, my understanding of who God is? Nicodemus is trying to fit Jesus into his paradigm. And Jesus totally rejects this way of thinking. What he's communicating to Nicodemus is there is something here, there is someone here who is far beyond your categories. Far beyond your wisdom. Far beyond your learning. Far beyond your control. Far beyond your sense of self-sufficiency what Jesus communicates to Nicodemus is no no I'm not here to submit to your judgment I'm here to save you from the judgment that you are already under And Nicodemus has no category for this Jesus says to him uh, unless you were unless you were born again he unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, which is just a way that Jesus uses to underline something. Truly, truly, I say to you. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus had, friends, Nicodemus had given his whole life to sing the kingdom of God. That's all he studied. And Jesus comes to this man and he says, this thing that you have devoted your whole life to wrapping your mind around, uh, you can't get there unless you're born again. And Nicodemus says, well, I don't know how to do that. And Jesus says, exactly. He gets more and more confused by Jesus as this interaction goes on. Right, he asks two different, two different how questions. How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And you like like we talked about earlier, like Nicodemus, do you not know this is a metaphor, right? And maybe he does. Maybe he's engaging on the metaphorical level. But what he's expressing is, hey, Jesus, even here on the metaphorical level, I don't understand what you're saying. So Jesus explains it a little bit more. And in verse nine, Nicodemus says to him, "How can these things be?" He just gets more confused. And what I I want us to see here is that this is Jesus being kind to Nicodemus. This is Jesus being kind to Nicodemus. He's not there to humiliate him. What Jesus is doing is he is pushing Nicodemus out of this realm of self-sufficiency into a place where he can finally admit that there are things that he doesn't know about the world. pushing Nicodemus past his own intellectual abil- intellectual abilities to draw him to a place of surrender. And I think that is something that is challenging for us to be drawn out of ourselves, out of our self-sufficiency into a place of surrender. But one of the phrases I hate the most Hate the most to say is, I don't know. I I do a lot in my life to avoid having to say, I don't know. Is that true for any of the rest of you? And that's true for me. I think it's true for many of us on an intellectual level. I was writing this. Uh, I was sitting uh, on a patio at Vanderbilt, and I thought, this is just so ironic to me. This institution that has built up on its ability, uh, on the projection that I- it's possible for humanity to know everything about everything in the world. And I was, I, this is, I saved this. I clipped this out of the newspaper like my grandparents do. Uh, it was a, a, a book review that was in the Wall Street Journal. And it was a review of this book called Rationality by a thinker named Steven Pinker and Mr. Pinker is a guy who has really no time for religious belief whatsoever. He's a strict rationalist and, and yet is willing to admit that this kind of strict rationalism often leads to a kind of hubris or pride that is detrimental to being a human in the world. And the book review is written by this guy, Andrew Stark, who's kind of critiquing this like strict rationalist view of the universe. Okay, so this is what uh, Andrew Stark has to say about this strict view of rationality that is expressed in the book. What Stark says is that rather reason discovers as it advances the limits of its comprehension. So reason discovers as it advances the limits of its comprehension, making the unknowable appear ever larger, an experience that induces humility. He said, many physicists now wonder whether reason has the capacity to penetrate inside the smallest quantum bits of our universe or to take us outside of the universe as a whole so as to explain its origins or determine whether or not we might be part of a multiverse. Whoa. Who says, the physicist Neil Turek asks, that we have the right to understand the universe anyway? Who says that we have the right to understand the universe anyway? That what Stark is, uh, is communicating is that even our, our, our brightest scientists, even the most intellectual people around us, have a limit to what they can understand. And that limit comes because we're finite human beings. How do we get outside of ourselves and outside of the universe that we all dwell in to have an outside perspective that might help us understand it? That's impossible. There's a limit to what we can understand as humans because we're limited. That in the face even of rationality, that the rational thing to do is to confess, I don't know. Where are the places in your life that you hate saying, I don't know? because it could be intellectually. It could be intellectual, right? It could be that you wrestle over these ideas of origins of the universe and how do we come to be. and uh, Some people really grind on those things, and it's hard to say I don't know in the face of those. That may not be your thing. But we all have places where we resist getting to the end of ourselves. We all have places that we resist saying, I don't know, places that we resist having our insufficiency exposed. What are those places for you? There's even a way of thinking about faith, uh, of approaching God as another lever that we can pull to understand or make sense of or control the universe. Friends, that is not what our God is about. He's not a lever that we can pull. The God that we worship is so much bigger than that, so much greater than that. He's a God, he's not a system that we work. Uh, He's a God who has authority over us. Who calls us out of our self-sufficiency. And what Jesus says to Nicodemus in this passage is that that self-sufficiency that's inside of all of us is actually darkness. Darkness. That's why John highlights for us that Nicodemus comes at night. This is like a truth; f- it's a fact uh, in a story, in the, and it tells us something interesting kind of on a few different levels. That Maybe why Nicodemus came at night is because he didn't want the other Pharisees to see what he was doing. That's entirely possible. But what we also know about the way that John wrote his gospel is that he never engages, he never uses descriptions of light and darkness simply to describe the amount of sunlight in the day. That for John, descriptions of light and darkness are always about people's spirituality. It's always about the conditions of their heart. And what John is telling us about this man, Nicodemus, when he comes to Jesus at night, is that he is so blinded by his self-sufficiency, by his inability to surrender, to say, I don't know, that his spiritual state, is it's dark because of that. And that's true for us. And I guess I gotta tell you, this is... Um, this is so hard for me because when I, feel like the, when I feel like the world gets dark, when I feel anxious or out of control, what I want to do myself is double down on understanding, on my ability, my self-sufficiency, and that's exactly the place that Jesus calls us to surrender. Let's talk about how Jesus does that, how he calls us from self-sufficiency to surrender. Because over the course of the narrative, that's what Jesus is doing in Nicodemus. He's moving him uh, into a new posture from self-sufficiency to surrender. So right in verse 2, like we talked about, he comes to Jesus and says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So, God is doing something here, but I want to be the judge of what it is. Then in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see him pushing back with this kind of skepticism about what Jesus is saying. And then finally in verse 9, how can these things be? Nicodemus is getting to the end of himself. And that is when Nicodemus drops out of the narrative. That in this specific passage, uh, Nicodemus' name isn't mentioned again after he says, how can these things be? That he's left at the end of this interaction kind of in a state of perplexity. But that's not where the book of John leaves us with Nicodemus. Nicodemus pops up two other times in the book. He pops up in John 7:50, when the Pharisees are all gathered together and they're talking about how, how uh, Jesus is a liar. And Nicodemus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not accuse someone of being a liar without having a trial. That's not how justice works in this country is what he says to them. Let's give Jesus a fair hearing. And then again, he pops up at the end of the book in John 19, 39. And what Nicodemus does in John 19 is that he is there, uh, removing Jesus' body from the cross and laying it in a tomb. And so you have to wonder, did Nicodemus move from this place of self-sufficiency to a place of surrender? And we don't know for sure, but that's, that's what it would seem like happens. And this interaction is one stop along the way. And what Jesus is doing all throughout this interaction with Nicodemus is he's calling him into surrender. We see this in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like why we talked about seeing the kingdom is this thing that Nicodemus has longed for, has studied about his entire life. It's something that he feels he deserves because of the ethnicity that he was born into. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This is about you being born again. And he says, how? I c- that's not something I can do myself. Exactly. And we see it again in verses five through eight. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Oh, of course. Right? Now what Jesus is saying here." He says, "You got to be born again of of water and of the Spirit." Is he's thrown back to the Old Testament? That's why he later says to Nicodemus, "How can you not understand these things?" It's not because Jesus is introducing a new truth here; it's because he's pulling a truth that's been visible all throughout God's teaching and interaction with His people throughout the Old Testament. This I- it's this idea uh, of of being washed and made clean, of God's Spirit coming and changing people's hearts. And those two ideas are connected throughout the Old Testament. This is one example of it out of Ezekiel 34, verses 24 through 27. So this is hundreds of years before. This is from the Old Testament. It's God speaking to his people. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You hear it? It's water and spirit coming together to transform people, to give them new hearts. But that's something that only God can do. And that's been the teaching of the scriptures all throughout the Old Testament is that what we need most in our lives is, is to have new hearts. New hearts that aren't turned away from God but that are turned toward God and that's something that only God can do. It's a result, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, of the Holy Spirit working. That's what this whole thing about the wind is about. The word uh, for wind and the word for spirit are the same word in both Hebrew and Greek. So Jesus is, with him here a little bit. Yeah, in the same way that you can't see the wind, but the wind is at work, so it is with the Spirit. You can't see the Holy Spirit, but he's at work. And what that requires is surrender. A crying out for a thing that you can't do for yourself. Well, what is it we're called to surrender exactly? It's a relevant question, right? Right? That what Jesus is calling Nicodemus to surrender, what he's calling us to surrender, is the hope that we put in our own abilities, in our self-sufficiency, in our ability to control and determine the outcome of our lives, the outcome of our eternity. He's calling us to surrender our faith in ourselves. Because like Nicodemus, we're convinced that we're able uh, to save ourselves. We're convinced of our own wisdom to live the good life. That what we know and understand is sufficient to guide us in who we are and what this life is about. And that when we surrender, what we're called to is putting down our, uh, our dedication to our own efforts to those things. We're called to surrender our stance as judge and to acknowledge that we are not in control, to give ourselves over to the God who is. I'm going to read uh, this piece out of an, out of an article in uh, Christianity Today that, like, really stuck out to me this week. Talking about who God is, what God is like. This is from a theologian named Kirsten Sanders. She says, Take the example of a lizard. A scientist could, given enough time and resources, study this lizard so that she learns all about its biology, systems, history, habitat, Eventually, this scientist could reasonably say that she knows all there is to know about lizards. Now, something she may never know. It's difficult, for instance, to judge a lizard's cognition. But we can know a lizard or any other creature as far as it can be known. And sometimes that's the way that we treat God, isn't it? That God is like this lizard that we can master. Or maybe we think of God not as like a a lizard, but like as Godzilla, like a really big lizard, right? Like a really big thing, but that that we can master it. And what Ms. Sander says is God cannot be known nearly as well as a lizard can. This is because of what kind of being God is. To treat God only as an object of study is to make a fatal error. Many Christians have learned to put knowledge before love, along with the idea that we must understand God before we can love him. But putting love before certainly allows us to know that we are loving God and not simply our own intellectual efforts. That the God that we worship is a God that is outside of our universe, that is outside of our abilities to understand him totally. And that's not to say, let me say this very clearly, this is not to say that faith is irrational. That is not what I'm saying. Faith is actually an incredibly rational conclusion to come to. So the call is not to somehow descend into irrationality. The call is to acknowledge that we worship a God that is far beyond our ability to totally comprehend him and to surrender to that reality. Like I said earlier, man, this is a hard one for me. I love to ask the question, why? Why, 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 why? I had a mentor say to me the other day, you know why is a, is a control question? That what I want to do, my my desire to understand why, which can be a really good thing to insist on the why, that was to say, if only I understood, then everything would get better. It allows me to distance myself from the pain that's happening in my life and to live under the illusion that if I understood, I could control it and I could make it be the way I want it to be. That's just not true. This is what the book of Proverbs has to say about that. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Friends, that's basically the entire sermon right there, okay? It's just acknowledging that, that uh, this passage in Proverbs, even in the Old Testament, points us toward Jesus. Jesus. Jesus has called us not to look to our own understanding but to look to him, to let him be our teacher. We're all being taught by someone or something. Let go of the idea that you are somehow self-determining everything about your life, what you will and will not believe. You are giving influence to somebody, something to determine how you're going to live your life. Who is it who's teaching you? Would you let that person be Jesus? In all your ways, would you acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths? That the way that we continue to walk, we don't come to Jesus just in faith initially, but we continue in a life of faith because this wind that blows the Holy Spirit that is at work is at work even even in you as a believer, guiding you and making your path straight. Maybe you are on the journey that Nicodemus is on. I want to encourage you, keep walking in it. And when you get to the place with God where you say, God, I don't know, that that doesn't mean that you've uh, taken a wrong turn. That means that you're walking in the right direction. Keep walking toward it. Keep walking toward him, toward the Lord. He desires to meet you and show himself to you. Would you open yourself up to being surrendered to him? Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Great. That journey of surrender is an ongoing journey. I just want to remind you before we come to the communion table, uh, the character of the God that we are surrendering ourselves to. And it comes out very clearly kind of at the end of this passage uh, when Jesus talks about this serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. Like, what is that about, okay? Again, back to the Old Testament, okay? There was this time where the people of Israel were grumbling. They were so angry at God, and so God sent snakes among them really we could talk about that but that would be a different sermon okay and they're biting people and people are getting sick and what God does is he says to Moses hey make this um, bronze snake and put it up on a stick and hold it up and when people look to the snake they look up they'll be healed and eventually the people of Israel started worshiping this snake it was a big problem it had to be destroyed but that was because they misunderstood what the snake thing was about okay it wasn't about the snake having magic powers that's silly That's idolatry, okay? God's very against that. But what the people were being called to do was to look up from the circumstances that were biting them in the feet and to look up. And to recognize that as they look away, as they look toward God, look up, right? That God desires to save them. And what Jesus says is that that's gonna happen to me. I'm gonna be lifted up. But when he's talking about being lifted up, he's not talking about his ascension. He's talking about being lifted up on the cross. That what he's telling Nicodemus, this man who is so skeptical of him, he's saying there's going to be a time where I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be crucified on your behalf. I'm going to be lifted up. And by turning your eyes to me in faith, to what I've done for you, the sacrifice that I've made for you, you can be saved. You can be born again, not of your own effort, but you can enter into this new life, be given a new heart as you turn to me and surrender. that the the God that we're surrendering ourselves to is a God who loves us. That's what John 16 through 21 is all about. This is kind of a step out of the narrative. So we've got this back and forth between Jesus and Nicodemus. And then John, who's writing the gospel, comes back in and he says, let me interpret this for you. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing in this conversation. For God so loved the world that he gave Yeah, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That the God that we're called to surrender to, this God who is beyond our comprehension, is beyond our comprehension, first of all, in the fact that he loves us. That even when we were enemies, even when we were far from him, he came to us, loved us, suffered for us on our behalf to draw us to himself. That if we would look at him with faith, that if we would surrender our self sufficiency, that we would be healed that's what we're celebrating today when we come to the communion table. Is that we have a God who meets us in faith. That we come to him, that we feast on him as we take these elements together, that we're strengthened uh, for this journey of faith that's ahead of us, this journey of walking in and living in the Spirit. And so as we move into this time, I'm just gonna give you uh, two warnings. One is for those of you who are here who've been walking with Jesus for a long time. And the warning that Paul has for us is that if you, uh, if you there are places in your life where you are insisting on your self-sufficiency, where you are refusing to surrender an area of your life to God, this communion table is not for you right now. That this table is for, for us to come and lay down our self-sufficiency and totally surrender ourselves to Jesus. So if there are places in your heart where you are saying to Jesus, you cannot have that, Deal with that first. That's what the scriptures would tell us. And if you're in a place in your kind of spiritual journey where you have not surrendered yourself to Jesus yet, man, we are so glad that you're here. I would encourage you that as we're singing, as we're praying, that you would use this time to think about who God is. That you'd be asking him about himself. That you'd even be surrendering, surrendering yourself to him. taking steps along that journey like Nicodemus did. But this meal is not for you yet. It's for people who have surrendered themselves to the Lord uh, through Jesus Christ. And if you are here and you are aware of your need to surrender, then this meal is for you. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna create some space for you to engage in that, for you to talk to the Lord, for you to talk to the Holy Spirit and ask him, Lord, what do you wanna convict me of? What are you asking me to surrender this morning? So if you would, go ahead. You can fold down the kneelers that are in front of you. You don't have to use the kneelers, but We'll drop them now because they kind of make a big bang, okay? Uh, What we're going to do is I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for this meal we're about to take as a family. And then you'll have some time to think and pray. And we'll sing a song. Then after that song, I'll come up and we'll take the bread together. There'll be another song where you can, again, think and pray. And then we'll take the wine together. So let me pray for us. Father, we praise you and thank you uh, for this meal that you've given us. Uh, We thank you for your desire, Lord, to nourish us, to meet with us, uh, to feed us on yourself. Lord, we also admit that we are a people, Lord, I'm a person uh, who is so often so convinced of my self-sufficiency. Jesus, we're sorry. And pray that as we uh, spend some time praying and singing, Lord, would you show us the places in our hearts that we are insisting on being our own gods, And Lord, would you lead us uh, to repentance in those places to surrender to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.